This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at rockandrollarchaeology.com. A dollar a month, a big 12 bucks a year, diggers, and we will continue to put it to good use. Okay, business handled. Let's stack some wax. So, vinyl. Vinyl is a thing these days. Sometimes technology from the past will get resurrected, get another go-around. It's rare, but it's not unheard of. It doesn't just happen at cosplay conventions. It's real. It's out there. It's measurable. A full generation and more, 30-plus years, has passed since digitally encoded music became a practical technology. But over the last decade or so, a lot of audiophiles have come back around full circle, uh, back to dropping the needle on the analog long-play record. Numerous music stores, online and out there in Meat World, sell only vinyl, and they're not just catering to some niche nostalgia market. In the last 10 years, vinyl consumption has grown over 500%. Vinyl sales topped $200 million in 2014, and $1 billion in sales is projected for this year, 2017. So why? why? Why are people feeling the vinyl groove? What's the appeal? Now, uh, we are Switzerland. We are neutral. We are staying out of this whole digital versus analog food fight. Both sides have some good points to make, and uh, we'll just leave it at that. So with that set aside, we'll just say the obvious. It's the same appeal vinyl LPs have always had. The same thing we loved about albums as kids and as teenagers. It's tangible. Slide the vinyl out of the sleeve and it's got some heft, some substance to it. It comes in this big, cool package. Cover art, liner notes and lyrics, photos and stories. It's a feast for the eyes and for the ears. And like any good feast, it's meant to be shared. A vinyl LP is something you put on when you have some friends over. Hey, let's crack open some wine, listen to Blonde on Blonde or Ziggy Stardust or Nevermind. I got it on vinyl. Here, pass the cover around. We kind of need that these days when our music is all on earbuds, inhabiting our heads to the exclusion of everything else and everybody else. 
Need a little reminder that music is better when it's shared? Enter today's special guest, author Mike Morsh. Mike has written three books about his personal vinyl collection, The Vinyl Dialogues, Dropping the Needle, and Stacks of Wax. Each is a series of love stories about the music from Mike's favorite era, the 1970s. Mike is a journalist by trade, and he makes his home outside Philadelphia. He's been a newspaper man for four decades, writing art and culture, politics, features, sports, pretty much any section of the old fish wrap, you'll find a Mike Morse byline. In 2013, just as vinyl was beginning to really soar again, Mike put together a hot new system. Audio-Technica turntable, Ortofon needle, running into an Onkyo amplifier with Polka audio speakers that will pin you to your chair. He went all in. First, with old albums he still had in the back of the closet. Then he started combing through the bins in the record stores, like way back in the old days. So what does a veteran journalist in an obsolescing business do with a blaster analog system, a bunch of records, and a renewed interest in those vinyl artifacts? <laughs> well, journalists going to do journalism. So Mike started chasing down and interviewing the artists who made those LPs and getting the story. We first ran across his books when we were researching episodes five and six of our main show. We loved them. His books are great research tools, accurate and easy to use. He gives us all the who, what, why, when, and where stuff, and he colors it in for us, gives us more about the human element, about what's going on at the time. It's some very nice writing. Each book is organized by chapter, about a specific album, by some of the greats, and by some of the forgotten greats. In this interview, Mike and I dive into a few chapters of each book. His choices are excellent throughout, and Mike has that journalist's knack for finding that telling detail, getting the inside story. So how about I just drop the needle right here, on side one, and let it play. Let's get to it. Paperback Hey, diggers, I'd like to welcome Mike Morsh, author of the Vinyl Dialogues, here with us today. Mike, welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock. How you doing? Pretty good, Christian. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to get into uh, the three books that you've written and how those things came about. Uh, how are things? How's, uh, how's the East Coast these days? Oh, we're waiting for the uh, summer concert tour schedule to, to start. Uh, getting some better weather here and uh, trying to make some decisions about what concerts we want to see this summer. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you've noticed they, they tend to, like, bunch them up in, uh, in uh, you know, it's like the summer months and, you know, it's all festivals now. Uh, now you have to decide uh, who to see and, you know, where your cash is going to go. Yeah, and you know what, I've, uh, I've already decided on one, uh, and it's um, – Chicago and the Doobie Brothers, who are going to be uh, here in Camden, New Jersey, across the river from us in Philly. 
in July. So I'm looking forward to that show. It's going to be a big one. Yeah, that actually that sounds like a pretty good bill. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I, we're just talking about uh, these various uh, tours or these festivals that are, uh, you know, being uh, marketed right now for 2017. And of course, you know, a big one, a classic rock. I'm sure you heard about Desert Trip last year. It seems like uh, right. that proved once again that this music that you and I love to talk about is, uh, yeah. you know, huge and still huge going, you know, 50, 60 years on. And uh, so I know Live Nation is capitalizing on the interest that Desert Trip proved, and they're doing this coast-to-coast festival where, you know, it's the Eagles and Fleetwood Mac, uh, Journey, Steely Dan, and the Doobie Brothers. And they're, I think, at Giant Stadium, uh, or maybe it's the Mets Stadium there uh, in Brooklyn, and then um, and then Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. So that's uh, Yeah, that's, that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention all the other festivals. You know, whether whether you're a Coachella guy or girl or uh, Bottle Rock or uh, one of these smaller festivals or uh, uh, Bonnaroo out in uh, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's it's funny. You know, and I've noticed that if you look at some bands' touring schedules these days, it's all festivals. Uh, you know, Chili Peppers came yeah. out with a new album last year, and that was the first one that I noticed. I got a chance to see them at a small party before the album dropped. And looking at the at their tour schedule, every single one were festivals. This year, I've noticed that the Foo Fighters are doing exactly the same thing. You know what's interesting? You mentioned festivals. When you talk to some of the, the classic artists that, that I talk to, uh, they weren't real fond in general of the festivals in the 60s and 70s that that uh, they just they they called them uh, a real pain to to do they they weren't fond of them and that was including right up to Woodstock oh I, that I'm sure I mean there's plenty of reasons why not to uh, you know love playing uh, you know in a stadium uh, without all the uh, the goodies that are, exist today you know including right. you know top quality sound uh, you know the artists mm-hmm. are well taken care of in the backstage uh, and the same thing with the audience you know you have these various levels of of uh, VIP status that you get, you know, so what, what was in the backstage is now in the front uh, house these days. So uh, <laughs> it's a whole different world. I, I'm sure they're, they're, they're happy now. Uh, and some yeah. people, they, they just set up camp. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, we were talking about the who they're coming to Vegas and they're going to stay in Vegas for five days and just sit there and make everybody come to them. So yeah. I think, I think we're starting to see a little bit of that. And, you know, let's face it, you know, these guys are getting long in the tooth. Uh, gosh, I, I can't they imagine are. getting on the, getting on on the bus, you know, unless I'm Willie Nelson or Bob Dylan, man, those guys right. just can cons- consistently tour. So, but hey, let's get into what it is you do. We're real excited to have you here. Thank you. This is 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 a really fascinating subject. It's in a, in some ways, it's it's a lot like what we're doing with the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. You know, we're looking at it from a macro uh, standpoint, and you know, you micro it down to uh, uh, each individual album. Now, there's three books out. I think it's uh, the Vinyl Dialogues came out first and then uh right. dropping the needle i think is the second one and correct. then stacks of wax is the third one and uh, I, I think there's a fourth one coming too uh yeah in fact uh i should be finished with the writing 
by the end of April, I'll go to the editors, and we should have a, uh, the fourth volume out by the middle of the summer, we hope. Great. Well, maybe we'll get uh, some teasers from you here at the end. So let's yeah. start with, uh, with the beginning and kind of tell our audience, you know, how did you kind of get into this? Uh, now, I, I know a little bit about you. You know, you're an old newspaper guy. You've been, you've been a journalist for decades, right? So, so yeah, I, I, I take it you went to school for journalism and, and uh, ended up in the newspaper business, right? I did. In fact, uh, I come out of the University of Iowa Writers School with a bachelor's degree in journalism. And uh, I was a baseball player in college, but uh, the Division One pitcher started throwing sliders, and that made me uh, a journalist. Uh, so that, I uh, that, that decided that. I, my coordination just wasn't quite up to that, right? You know, yeah, I, I figured I'd better start paying attention in class at that point. So right, uh, unfortunately, right. I did. But yeah, I've uh, I've been a journalist for uh, four decades now, and uh, have written about just about everything. And I moved to the East Coast in, in 2000 uh, for work, and uh, in about 2004, I kind of got into music writing uh, just because uh, a colleague of mine at a paper that we worked at needed somebody to write a story about an appearance by the Marshall Tucker Band. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I wasn't a huge Marshall Tucker fan in the 70s, mm-hmm. but I thought, oh, you know, uh, I might like to talk to Doug Gray, who's uh, one of the, uh, in fact, he's the only original Founder, member yeah. left in the Marshall mm-hmm. Tucker band. Mm-hmm. So I did that story and I liked it a whole lot and uh, continued to do uh, music writing. Uh, when when the acts would come through the greater Philadelphia area, we'd uh, our news group would do advanced stories on them. And, and so I, I, I ended up volunteering for a lot of the 70s uh, bands that were still coming through. And that's how I got into it. And, this and, was, and this really enjoyed the, the Philadelphia area, right? Correct. Suburban okay. Philadelphia. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So we got, you know, we got a lot of the big names that, uh, you know, Philadelphia is a tour stop for a lot of people. So we got oh, them all yeah. through there. Oh, yeah. 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 I can imagine. Yeah. So you started that in 2004. And then um, right. was it, I think it's 2013. Things change a little bit for you, huh? They did. You know, I had uh, grown up in the 60s in central Illinois with my mom and dad's uh, record collection, vinyl collection. And I didn't realize how cool and hip my parents were until years later. But when we, I never, think back, we never do, do we? No, but if you look at their vinyl collection back in the 60s, I mean, they had all the, the popular music of the time. And I'm talking, you know, Elvis and Sinatra and the Beatles and the Beach Boys and, and on and on. And so I grew up as a kid, you know, listening to that vinyl. Um, as you know, by the time we got to the seventies and I would have been in high school and college, uh, both in the seventies, we kind of got into eight track cassettes for a little while, yeah. uh, eight track tapes and then, and then, uh, cassettes. So in the seventies, I never had my own collection. Once I, you know, started to get older, I never, I just never had my own vinyl collection. You, well, you, had, you, you had the uh, the eight track collection, uh, the bulky eight tracks, and then uh, a little bit uh, easier to handle uh, cassettes. Oh yeah, very much so. In fact, if if I look back now, I think it's the cassettes I had more of because right. you know the eight tracks were so hard to drag around. <laughs> you remember the <laughs> big box we used to have on the floor of the car? Right, right. Oh yeah, and they, and they took up half the the floorboard on the on the passenger side of the car. You couldn't have your girlfriend in there a slide over because the box was in the way. Right, um, right, but, right. Uh, 
But in 2013, uh, my wife uh, got me a, a turntable, a record player. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to start my own vinyl collection. And I went and, and used record stores in the Philadelphia area then and now continue to be uh, fairly popular, but also fairly affordable. And it was a Saturday, uh, you know, right after Christmas, I went down to the local used record store and I found the album Abandoned Luncheonette by Hall & Oates for a oh. dollar. And I was thrilled. <laughs> now because, that's a deal. Yeah. Well, I was thrilled because I happened to live in North Wales, Pennsylvania, which is where John Oates grew up. And, right, right. and the newspaper group that I was with were essentially the hometown newspapers for both John Oates and Daryl Hall. They both grew up in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. And so it had a local connection, but I was also a Hall and Oates fan. So I grabbed this album for an hour and I came home and played it. And, and as you know, uh, album covers, uh, the album sleeves, things like that, they're a treasure trove of information about what's on the record inside. Yeah. And oh, yeah. I had oh, yeah. Flipped the, the liner album. notes yeah. are, yeah, are just the as liner notes and, and right. everything. And, and so I had flipped the, the, the record over and I was reading the back cover and I noticed that the album had been recorded in 1973. And I thought, wait a minute, 73, uh, 2013, that's 40 years ago. And I thought, as, just as a local journalist, I said, I wonder if Daryl and John would talk about the 40th anniversary, since it's the 40th anniversary where they talk about the making of that album. Now, I had interviewed both of them several times because we were the hometown newspaper. Uh -huh. And so I had developed a, a relationship with their manager. And again, this was a Saturday. And when I came up with this idea, I just emailed him. And he lives on the West Coast. And I actually heard from him two or three hours later that Saturday. And I had made my request for the news, and I told him why. Talk about abandoned lunch and that. And he said, yeah, no problem. Within four days, I had them both on the phone in separate interviews talking about abandoned lunch and that. Wow. And their memories about that were just fabulous. I mean, they, they were so detailed in their memories. And my thinking at this point was that I was writing a story, a local story for my local, you know, for my papers. Mm -hmm. That was my thinking at that point. Right, 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 right. Yeah, just Those another, another assignment, so right. Another assignment. Those interviews were so detailed, and I had such a good time writing that story, and the finished product I was so pleased with that a couple of weeks after it was published, I was just kind of sitting around thinking, I wonder if other artists would talk about memorable albums in their career. And that's exactly how the idea was born. When I would do my advanced stories for the paper uh, on groups that were coming through the Philadelphia area, I would also have, uh, I started to research albums that these artists had done. And, you know, when I got the information I needed for my stories for the paper, then I would say, hey, by the way, you know, can we talk a little bit about this album? And so having done the research on that album, what I found was that if you could pick the right album, and there's no surefire way to do that, but if you, if you make an educated guess, about what the artist might want to talk about, they will. All you got to do is just shut up and let them talk. Right. Uh, and and that's how the whole thing evolved. And it, one, I can't tell you how much fun it is to talk to the people who essentially made up the soundtrack of my life. And two, just to have conversations with people that you've always thought about having conversations with about music that's important to you or that's important to that has a personal connection to to my growing up I know uh, the and that's feeling. been mm -hmm. so much fun it's just yeah. been so much fun to do that yeah and it's really nice that uh, a lot of these guys are still around that can share this and uh, you know yourself and uh, like what we're doing we're chronicling this uh, before they're passed mm -hmm. away and passed on right. so that uh, people do know how how significant this music was and how it helped shape the culture 
of uh, the latter half of the 20th century. So let's dive into the the first book, uh, the actual vinyl dialogues, and I'll, I'll just throw it out to you. You know, let's start with Hall of Notes. Uh, give me a yeah. give me a good story from uh, those interviews. Uh, and diehard Hall of Notes fans may know this story. When I first heard it, I didn't know it, uh, so it was again fascinating to me. Uh, there's a song. <laughs> Uh, on Abandoned Luncheonette called Las Vegas Turnaround. It was written by John Oates. And during the interview with John, he was telling me the story about it. And again, I, as a writer, I love the inspiration that songwriters get. And the inspiration for this story was that uh, Paul and Oates had moved to New York from Philadelphia. And, and John used to, to take his guitar and just kind of walk around the streets of New York because a guitar was, was a huge chick magnet. And, oh, uh, you know, it that, always is. How, it still is. <laughs> yeah, it still is. And, and, you know, with the guitar slung over his shoulder, he, uh, he happened upon two women on the street that were just walking in the same direction as he was. And he calls them, he said, in those days, in the early 70s, they were called stewardesses. Now we know them as flight attendants. Correct. And uh, the conversation started, and they, John was asking about what was going on. And they said, well, tomorrow we're leaving on a Las Vegas turnaround. And John said, well, what's that? And, and the women said, well, it's where we get a bunch of high rollers from New York. Mm. Uh, we leave the first thing in the morning. We fly out to Vegas. They gamble all day. And then we turn around and fly back that evening. So we, we call it a Las Vegas turnaround. I believe that's the and that was the inspiration. Yes. And that was the inspiration for this song, Las Vegas Turnaround. Now, there's a, a lyric in the song. And it, it, it goes, uh, Sarah's off on a turnaround flying gambling fools to the Holy Land, Las Vegas. So he references the name of one of the women there. Now, they stayed, Oates stayed in touch with the two women to the point where he brought one of them home to meet Daryl Hall. And that flight attendant ended up having a 30-year personal relationship with Daryl Hall. Her name was Sarah Allen, the Sarah that's referenced in Las Vegas Turnaround. From Sarah Smile. And, uh, and just a few years later, yes, Daryl Hall wrote the song Sarah Smile about the very same woman. So what we have is... Oates writing a song and Hall writing a song about the same woman on two different albums, mm. two years apart. Oh, there's the muse once again. We we keep finding yeah. her everywhere we go. <laughs> yeah. uh, no surprise. <laughs> well, no surprise let's take a minute. Let's take a minute and uh, play for the folks. Las Vegas turnaround. Alrighty. Sarah's off on a turnaround, flying gambling fools to the Holy Land, Las Vegas. Off on a turnaround, flying gambling fools to the holy land, Las Vegas. Sometimes she's here and sometimes she can't be found. Turn around. In Sarah's Well, Mike, there you have it. There is uh, a song about Sarah, I guess a first incarnation of Sarah. Right. Uh, that's that's pretty and, and you know what, Christian, in their live show today, to this very day, Las Vegas Turnaround is, is in the set. Uh, every time I've them. seen them live, they still play Las Vegas Turnaround. And there are some songs that they play uh, in every set I've ever seen them play live. She's Gone is one of them. And Sarah Smile, uh, right? But those right. three songs are in every set that I've that I've seen them in in recent years. Wow, that's pretty cool. That is some uh, yeah. Mike. That is some archaeology right there. 
That's what we like to hear. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. All right. So, um, I mean, you know, gosh, there's uh, what is there? Uh, there's about 15 different guys that you've talked to or different albums that you've highlighted in the first book. And I, I think instead of me kind of picking through at first, I thought, oh, I like this one. Oh, I like that one. Look, you know, you got the you got the goods. You've got the real archaeology. Uh, let's give the folks another one. The one that that is kind of uh, odd to me, only because it's I think it's a great story, involves uh, Brewer and Shipley, a duo by the name of Brewer and Shipley, uh, Michael Brewer and Tom Shipley. And they were kind of uh, 60s hippies. Mm-hmm. And they had done in 1970 a an album called Tarkio. Oh, mm-hmm. and I believe it was their uh, it was their third album, third studio album at the time. And they had not really hit on anything yet. But uh, there's a song on there called One Toke Over the Line, which uh, a lot of people are, are familiar oh, yeah. with. Oh, yeah. I know that yeah. song. Yeah. I mean, and, who hasn't sang that uh, with an acoustic guitar? Well, yeah. And, and essentially, that, that story, according to Michael Brewer, it happened outside a club in Kansas City before they were ready to go on. And they had gone out back to indulge in uh, a substance or two. And uh, by the time they got on stage, uh, they had they were into the first or second song. And uh, after they finished the song, Brewer said to Shipley, "Man, I think I'm one took over the line, meaning that I might have overindulged a little bit." Mm, um, um, man, how and so they didn't think much. <laughs> they didn't think uh, much about it until the next day, when uh, Tom said to Michael, "What was that thing you said to me on stage uh, that night?" And uh, he told, "Well, he said it was one took over the line." So they, they put the song together, and they only put it together originally for their friends, you know, as, a, as kind of a joke song. It was, it was not meant to be a record. It was not meant to ever be recorded. But yeah, when they kind were of, in— it's kind, of, it's kind of a novelty sort of song, as it is. It's, yeah, but, uh, yeah. 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 I and, think and, maybe the first time I ever heard it might have been on Dr. Demento, if I remember right. So. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely one of those songs that, you know— it certainly is is a novelty song, right. at least in its early Let's just say the references are hard to escape if you if you they in the are know. indeed. And you're in the know. And <laughs> what happened was is that when they when they were recording the album Tarkio, mm-hmm. they were one song short. They they had recorded all the songs they had written and known at the time, and they were one one song short of being a full album. And uh, the producer said to him, "Well, we need another song." And they looked at each other and said, well, we can put one toke on there. It's just a, you know, it's a throwaway joke song, but let's put it on there. And they did. And that ended up being played by radio stations across the country to the point where it became a hit. And, you know, and, and, and totally unexpected by both Brewer and Shipley. Now, what happened was that, that that song had so many tentacles to it in the careers of Brewer and Shipley, not the least of which is because of the drug reference in it, or the alleged drug reference in it, it got them on President Nixon's enemies, enemies list, list. As, as, <laughs> as, as subversive. As we know, a lot of and, people ended up on that list. <laughs> right. And the government did actually try to exert some pressure on radio stations, on, on, on the parent companies of radio stations, not to play the song. Well, as we all know, and even in that era, the more people tell you that you can't listen to something, the more you want to hear it. Oh, yeah. And that just made the song explode even further. Yeah, big mistake. Uh, so it became an even bigger hit because right. of the Nixon administration's opposition <laughs> to it. It became such yeah. a big hit. Always blows up that, in my face. Yes. Yeah, but it became such a big hit that it attracted the attention, believe it or not, 
of the Lawrence Welk show. Oh, I and, know where you're going. Okay. <laughs> and, really? And I mean, wait, okay, go on, it, go on. Well, what a lot of people don't realize about the Welk show was that the artists on the Welk show sang a lot of songs that were current hits at the time. And so it would not yeah, have just, been unusual. Just rearranged, just rearranged in the softer versions for... Uh, exactly. Grandma, the arrangements right. might have been a little different. But yeah, they were, but the Lawrence Welk people were singing Beatles songs and, and Beach yeah. Boys songs and, and yeah, yeah. Henry Mancini songs, and they were singing all the popular songs of the era. And One Talk was a popular song. Now, Unfortunately, Mr. Welk thought that because it had the word, and part of the lyrics included the word "sweet Jesus," he called it. He thought it was. He a thought it was a religious song. song. Oh, Jesus! He thought it was a religious <laughs> song. And so, two Welk artists by the name of Dick Dale and Gail Farrell sang it on the show. Yeah, I've seen um, it. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Okay, and there, there is a YouTube video of that, yep. and it's it's absolutely hilarious. So after I got done with the, the interviews with, with Brewer and Shipley, I, what I wanted to know was, did the Welk singers know what they were singing about? Oh, great question. And I actually, and I actually tracked down Gail Farrell, the, the, the woman who sang it on the show. And she, she lives out in your area in, in California. Mm-hmm. And I called her and I, you know, I explained to her what it was about and, and, and got into it. And I talked to her for an hour and to her credit, she never answered the question about what she knew and when she knew it. Really? And the reason she didn't, Plausible the she didn't was that she was, well, she was writing a one-woman play for herself that the answer would be revealed in that one-woman show. Oh. Coincidentally enough, that one-woman show opens in April, this April 2017, in California where the answer will be revealed. Uh, so... That story has come full circle, and I and and I've become friends with Gail and her her husband Ron Anderson, uh, and have kept in touch since that first interview. And I still do not know the answer. <laughs> she has still not told me. So a, l- a little uh, but you're I, so I will, vain type of thing. Yeah, but now now it's kind of I don't want to know until I you know right. see uh, right. see, see the, the show or or see a copy of the show, but. Yeah. Uh, you know the the tentacles that that song had for those artists were were fascinating to me. Yeah. All right, Mike. One more. Well, first of all, let's play one toke over the line. Yep. <laughs> That's amazing that it is. Isn't that a great love, song? The, That's just a great it song. Is, it, it's actually a pretty damn good song. I mean, it's a fun song, and uh, you can't you can't help but have a smile on your face after you hear it. And it's just yeah. hilarious that it ends up on the Lawrence Welk show and all those blue hairs were kind of singing about well, Sweet Jesus. Here's the end of that story. Just uh, at the in, in November of 2016, uh, Brewer and Shipley were here in suburban Philadelphia. I'd never seen them live. And I sent an email to Gail Farrell. And, and Ron Anderson, her husband, and I said, you know, Brewer and Shipley are out here. Why don't you guys come out and let's go see Brewer and Shipley together? 
just as a joke, I sent it to them because they, you know, it's across the country. They live in California. I can't. Ima- I couldn't imagine they would come to right, Philadelphia. Right, you know what? Right, right, right. They came to Philadelphia. No. And I, I, I had contact. I, when I found out that they were committed, I contacted the Brewer and Shipley's manager. I told them what was happening. They had never met Brewer and Shipley and Gail Farrell had never met. Uh-huh. And so we got to spend. We got to uh, right after sound check that the evening of the show. We got to meet them. They invited us to go to dinner. And there I was sitting, listening to Brewer and Shipley and the Lawrence Welk people talk about, you know, stories from back in the day. And, and yeah. you yeah. know, it was as good as it got for me. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Wow, that's fantastic, Mike. All right, one more out of out of the first book. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here for hours. Uh, we will, and, and we yeah. could do a multi-part series, but I think maybe uh, we'll have you back later on. So, one more out of uh, the first book, Vinyl Dialogues. What do you What do you think in here? Well, the Doobie Brothers, and I'll tell you why. Again, uh, in 1975, when I was a sophomore mm-hmm. in uh, high school, we used to have a jukebox in in our uh, high school uh, area where like we the- went. After the cafeteria thing? Okay, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it was just, it was a big long hallway, what it was. Uh-huh. But for, you could get two songs for a quarter. And I, I must, every day of the school year in 1975, I must have put a quarter in every day and I, I, I play two songs. My Maria by B.J. Stevenson, uh, mm, later okay. re- remade in the 90s by, by Brooks and Dunn as a, as a country song. Right. And China Grove by the Doobie Brothers. I was Great fascinated song. with that song. I love that song. Love that song. I play and, that song to this day. Yep, in, in, in my yeah, band, we, just, we play it's, it's got, yep. it's, it's just one you want to turn up and, and roll the windows down, man, and just and rock out with it. But uh, So when I got a chance to interview uh, Tom Johnston about uh, the album that China Grove was on, The Captain and Me. Yeah, um, 1973. And he, and he told me the story about China Grove. And, and essentially, uh, what happened was that, uh, as he recalls it, they were on the bus and they had passed a sign that he recalls saying China Grove, Texas. But he couldn't remember if he actually saw the sign or if he dreamed the sign or whatever. But he went ahead and wrote a song based on uh, the words China Grove. And, and according to him, he made up all these ridiculous uh, lyrics about sheriffs and samurai swords and, and stuff that just oh, didn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense, but just sounded good. And, and a few years later, uh, after the song had been cut and had been popular, he was in a cab in Houston. And he struck up a, a conversation with the cab driver, and, and uh, the cabbie that recognized him as one of the Doobie Brothers. And uh, he said to him, well, you know, what did you write a song about that little old town, China Grove? And Tom Johnson said, well, what town, China Grove? I thought I might have dreamed that in a sign. You know, I saw it on a side and dreamed it somewhere. And he said, up to that point, I, had, I, I didn't realize that, the, that China Grove, Texas existed. And he said, yeah, oddly enough, it's right the, outside of San Antonio. Right. And that's part of the lyrics as well. Right. You know, Sam yeah. and Tom. Yeah. Um, and Johnson said, you know, it was uh, he, he thought that the cabbie was kind of yanking his chain a little bit. But in fact, as it turns out, apparently Tom Johnston wrote a song that was more real than he thought it was when he wrote it uh, about trying to grow fences. And uh, it just turned out to be a, a, a great song uh, that I still like. Like we said, I still play that. Day. Well, hell, I thought you were going to tell me that you met the teacher and the preacher. No, no, no. All right, let's play a little of China Grove.
yeah, I, man, I play that song, uh, you know, hundreds of times a year, and I never get bored of it. I still love that song. Like uh, I said, it's one of those ones that turn up as loud as I can stand. It, yeah, it, it is. It is a lot of fun. All right, so you know, the Vinyl Dialogues, uh, the first one, came out in 2013, right? Uh, that is correct. Uh, 2014, actually. 2014, and uh, yeah. obviously, uh, it did pretty well. Uh, you know, you know, you know. Tell us about uh, the book coming out, and uh, you know, I, I'm sure you went on a little book tour and all that, right? Uh, we did a little bit. Uh, the publisher is Biblio Publishing out of Columbus, Ohio. And um, you know, these days, the publishing industry is, is pretty complicated. And yeah. what was most important to me is just to get the get my work out there and get my you know to get my stuff out there so that people could read it. So that's that was the original goal. And a couple of things happened that I didn't anticipate, but in hindsight, make a lot of sense. As we discussed earlier, these books are essentially a series of short stories. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to. I have them uh, in the book in chronological order by the year that the album was released. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the book starts in 1970, goes to 1979, essentially. Mm-hmm. But I only did that just for no particular reason. When people started to offer feedback about the book, when the readers started to offer feedback, what they said, one of the things they liked about it, there's a couple of things. One, they read a chapter. And, and go to their vinyl collections and get the record out and listen to it while while they were reading or just after they had read a chapter. Or they'd go on YouTube and, and listen to a particular song or something like that. And then the other thing was that they could jump around. They didn't have to read them in order. They're not necessarily meant to be read in order. You can go through the, the book and pick out your favorite albums or your favorite chapters and read those at your leisure. And you can put the book down and pick it up later. And, you know, you can... Again, thumb through the chapters uh, that you haven't read. So that ended up being uh, an advantage, uh, we thought, to helping, uh, for lack of a better term, there's a book you can take to the beach and read uh, at your leisure. Uh, uh, it's not that's something how I that's got a story up, that's, that's how I ended up reading it, is uh, just uh, yeah. you know, what, what, what interests me that day. Uh, and yeah, to your point, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go and listen to the album or go and listen to at least some cuts from uh, from each one. So, uh, I, yeah, it's just made to be like that. I get it. Yeah, and what's, you know, it's it's available in uh, both real book and, and an e-book. Yeah, dead so tree, dead tree and e-books, right, right, right. Yeah, uh, dead, yeah. and so uh, it, it offers uh, readers an option. And essentially what happened was that I enjoyed it so much, the, uh, writing the first one, then I just kept writing, and, and I'm still writing, and I'm, I'm not working. Book and I'm still writing, all right. I'm still writing, and and again, it, it goes to how much enjoyment I get out of this. And it, it's not that I don't want people to read the books, but if they don't, that's okay because it's been so uh, one uh, creatively fulfilling for me, mm. uh, and, and again, just so much fun. And uh, you know, I'd love to sell a million books, yeah. But you know what? Not that that doesn't matter, but it, it, it kind of doesn't. It, it's from the creative standpoint has been a, a tremendously fulfilling project for me. And that's kind of why I just keep going. I, I'm not tired of it yet. And as we know, there's a lot of music out there to write about. Well, let's talk about volume two, Dropping the Needle. That was the second one. I, when did that come out? They're coming out one, once a year, it looks so like. 2015. Uh, that, that 2015. Yeah. One of my favorite chapters in that one, and of course I like them all because I've written them all, so uh, it's hard for me to choose sometimes. But uh, one of the interviews I thought was uh, really, really good was Don Felder of the Eagles. Oh, um, one of these nights, right? You know, 
one of these nights. And the reason I chose one of these nights, you might think, you know, if you're going to get to talk to one of the Eagles, you'd want to, you know, talk about the Hotel California. And, you know, sometimes that plays in a decision also about what album I choose. Uh, there's been a lot written about the Hotel California album. So there's not now a whole lot of diving uh, into new, the mind of the professor here. Okay, good. Right. There's not a whole lot of new ground to harvest about that album. Right. Right. But when you consider Felder's career, my thinking on him was, well, if I talk about the first album that he did as an official member of the Eagles, and that would have been uh, yeah. 1975, one of these nights. Yep, certainly was. Now he shared a story with me that I didn't, that I was unaware of, and I had to go get the record and look at it. You know that uh, when you get to the last song on on an album uh, on the side, when you get to the last song and the needle goes into that nether zone there, right at the end of the before yep. the label. Yep, yep. That's called the uh, now. Those did you know that was called the runout? No, those of us of a certain age know this, but uh, yes. Okay, but it's called the runout group. Um, right. Okay. And yeah. Gets you, gets you to the label, right? Right, gets you to the label, and then uh, in, a, in a lot of turntables, they that automatically lifts the uh, arm and puts it back, you know. Correct. So yeah. you can turn the record over. Mm -hmm. But uh, the producer uh, of one of these nights, and I, I'm sorry if I don't pronounce his name correctly, Bill Simzik, uh, and it's a lot of uh, consonants there. Yep. But he had decided on the master pressing of the album that he was going to take a steel pen and write a message in the runout groove on side one of one of these nights. And on side one, he wrote, don't worry, dash, dash, dash. And on side two, he wrote, nothing will be okay. Really? Now, the only people who know what this means are the guys in the Eagles, are the band members. Right. And according to Feller, uh, what that meant was that during the, that, mostly Fry, Glenn Fry and Don Henley, who were, you know, certainly the, the, the mas alpha male. The masters of, that, of the band, yes. The masters of the band. Apparently in the studio, they were such perfectionists that the Eagles would do take after take after take. And no matter how good the take was, the inside joke was, oh, don't worry, nothing will be okay, amongst <laughs> the, the other band members. Right. So when Simzik wrote, don't worry, nothing will be okay in the groove, so the runout grooves of side one and side two. That's it, what the reference was. It was a little was dig that, to uh, Glenn Fry on it was, one it was side kind of a, yeah, and Don it, Henley it was. on the other. Right. Wow. Right. And so, you know, I thought that was a really interesting little story. That um, is The other fantastic. thing about... I, I know I had that album, but I think, you're, I think to your point, I had it on cassette and never on vinyl. Wow. Well, if you've got it on vinyl, go get that record and look in the runout version. and you will see that. If you've got an original pressing. I, Ori original, yeah. Yeah, the, the original okay. vinyl from, from the 70s. Right, right. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, hey, there's too many songs here for me to pick. You pick your favorite off One of These Nights. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, I, I love One of These Nights. You know, well, there I, you go. I always have. Uh, let's play that one. <laughs> That's it. One of These Nights. Find out pretty mama 
Wow, Mike, you're just full of gold, man. Uh, all right, give me one more out of Volume 2. Okay, well, uh, I'm a big Beach Boys fan, uh, going back to when I was a kid. Okay. Uh, and I've had the opportunity to we, talk to... We've been doing a lot of Beach Boys stuff recently. Uh, we talked about them and, uh, you know, Brian and, and his friendly rivalry with the Beatles. And uh, we just had our rock and roll librarian uh, sit down with me and talk about uh, Brian Wilson's new memoir. So uh, Beach Boys are very big uh, over here with the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Well, uh, they've always been very big with me as well. And, and I have had the opportunity to speak with Brian on three different occasions over the years. Oh, wow. He's, uh, that's a guy. Uh, he's a tough, he is. And it's, it's the one interview I do that has me, uh, a bit starstruck because uh-huh. he's, he's the guy. Oh yeah. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's a difficult interview because he's a lot of yes and no answers to. So it's hard to get him to open up mm-hmm. to people that he doesn't know, but I've had a lot better luck with, uh, Al Jardine and Mike Love and Bruce Johnston. And uh, for volume two, I, I got Bruce to talk about the 1970 album Sunflower, which, according to Bruce, was uh, about the last album that he can recall that they, uh, and, and these are his words, that they were all still best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The, 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 the it, it, it was of more that than album. just a business. It was, they were still right. a band. Right, right. They were still a band. And they were, at the time... Uh, trying to remain relevant by 1970, you know they had they had passed on the Monterey Pop Festival. Yeah, uh, they did not get invited to Woodstock, uh, mm-hmm. and they were they were kind of passe by 1970. They they had had you know huge success in the 60s, and obviously mm-hmm. they had had pet sounds uh, in '66, mm-hmm. and uh, but they were they were struggling to remain relevant, and and Sunflower was the 16th studio album that they had recorded uh, by that point. And musically, uh, according to Bruce, it was all, he thought it was very good. The critics, not so much. Uh, But, but the one thing that struck me about that album didn't actually have to do with the music, but it had to do with the photo on the front of the album cover. Okay. And essentially what it is, is it's the guys all standing there, but some of them, uh, Mike and Carl and Brian, all have, I guess an L too, all have their young children with them on, on this, in this photo. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bruce, and Dennis, Bruce and Dennis did not have any children at that point. And uh, this photo was actually taken by Ricky Martin, son of Dean Martin. And the, the photo was taken at Dean Martin's ranch in California. Uh, which I had, I had a vague recollection that Carl Wilson eventually married uh, one of Dean Martin's daughters, but I didn't realize uh, the Martin Wilson connection to the point that in 1970 they were at at Dean's ranch taking the photo, and so uh, that to me was a, was a little bit of of uh, the joining of generations there on this photo for for the cover of this sunflower. Uh, album and I was just so fascinated by it. I did track down Ricky Martin and talk to him about that. And uh, you know, he basically said that uh you know he just it was a point and shoot camera and, and we only took about six or seven pictures because the kids were behaving themselves. And uh, <laughs> as kids are wont to do. Yeah. And uh, and then that's that. It ends up on the cover of the album. You know, uh, Carl Wilson and Ricky Martin eventually become uh, brothers in law. And uh, Brian produced an album uh, by Ricky in 1977. Uh, solo album is the only uh, solo album that Ricky Martin made. 
Wow. All right. Yeah. Well, pick a song from Sunflower and let's play some. Let me, oh, yeah. Let's do that. With, uh, you know, the one that, uh, that I like a lot is uh, Add Some Music to Your Day. Add Some Music uh, to Your Day. Add That's Some Music it. to Your Day. All right. The Sunday morning gospel goes good with the soul. Well, that's that's a nice song. You know, to be honest with you, I, I'm kind of unfamiliar with that. I mean, uh, uh, '70s Beach Boys just you know never were my thing, uh, and I haven't yeah. dived that deep back into them. Uh, maybe, maybe that maybe was one of the that was one of the cuts that uh, that that the Beach Boys included uh, during their live shows for the 50th anniversary reunion tour back in 2012. They did that uh. song. Uh, in the set. So, uh, uh, that's, you know, I, I kind of like that one. I just kind of like the way it sounds. Oh, that, no, a great choice. Great choice. All right. So now you have two volumes out, uh, in 2015 and I take it the typewriter just didn't stop because I know there's a volume three. There is, and it didn't. And, and it, it continued to be as much fun as the first two. And so I just continued to write some more. Well, let's and, talk about uh, that. That's uh, that one's called Stacks of Wax, and you know, so so with the first one, Vinyl Dialogues, uh, the name's cool. Uh, you know, I I would assume you were kind of you know following that uh, the vagina monologue. So uh, that was exactly that was exactly my my thought process, and and when I came up with the vinyl monologues, I I, I thought to myself, well, it's not really a monologue that I'm doing here; it's a dialogue. <laughs> And that's how that evolved. But that's exactly what I was thinking. So, yeah, you're right about that. <laughs> and then uh, the second one, I mean, you know, dropping the needle. Come on. That's uh, that's an old scene. Everybody knows that one. That is, that now, is, this yeah. one, Stacks of Wax, I mean, you know, I mean, Wax, an old moniker for mm-hmm. the, uh, the LP, uh, you know, the vinyl. And, you know, right. I don't know. I mean, you know, you could do Stacks. You could you could have you could have done STA. X, you know, for uh, yeah, Stuart Axton for stacks, you know, right. but yeah. but that that might have pigeonholed you to specific like soul music or Memphis or something exactly. like that. So I, I get that. So, but very cool. Yeah. All right. So the third out, al- the third, uh, the third album, the third book is uh, is stacks of wax, and uh, obviously went deeper. Did you do the the, the same concept of starting in 1970 and going to 1979? At this point, yes, I was still in, in in the 70s, so it would have been, you know, a third complete book about uh, music exclusively from 70 to 79. Now, I cheated a little bit in this one because I got a couple of good stories, and I dipped, I, I actually started with a 1969 album, and I ended with a 1980 album. The, uh, the 69 album was um, Sands of Time by Day and the American. And the uh, the last album, the nineteen eighty album, was uh, oh, Def uh, Leppard's uh, "On Through the Night." Def Leppard, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Yep, yeah, uh, "On Through the Night," Def Leppard, yeah. So uh, I, I kind of cheated a little bit, but I had good stories, and I didn't want to waste them. So that's that's why I, I, I cheated a little bit there. I don't think anybody's really going to care, Mike. Uh, it's all good. <laughs> uh, you know, I've read through them, and it's uh, it's all fun. All right, pick your favorite story from that book. 
Well, it's because I chased him through the first two books and couldn't get him. I finally oh, got a chance game, to talk. You're big game hunting now, huh? It was I was I was I was big game hunting, and I finally got an opportunity to talk to Art Garfunkel. Oh, um, yeah, that's now that's some big game hunting. You know, I I yeah, I talked to a lot of big stars, <clears throat> uh, but there's a admittedly there's a level I can't quite get to, and that's the Paul McCartney, Elton John. Carly Simon kind of level, Carol King. I can't quite get to that level. I'd love to talk to all those people, uh-huh. and they're certainly on my bucket list. But uh, you know, the only folks that they talk to these days are Rolling Stones. They talk to anybody, right? Uh, right. So, uh, but but Garfunkel was one I thought was within my reach, and and I I had made some inquiries, and I I was promised yes he'll talk, but it was two years after I started asking that I finally uh, got him, and it's because he was making an appearance in Princeton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were looking for, uh, you know, an advanced story. And I had done research on, on Garfunkel, and I knew that he was, uh, for lack of a better term, he was, he was kind of prickly with reporters. So I, I anticipated that I had to really be ready. Uh-huh. And, and one, of the reason he, one of the reasons he was prickly is because the first question he gets asked by every reporter, at least according to him, and according to what I could find was, are you and Paul Simon ever getting back together? Oh, yeah, of course. And he gets very, very tired of having to say, well, question. it's up to Paul. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he will suffer no fools anymore with that question. So and not to pat myself on the back, but I had a realization that he didn't want to talk about that, which was Good fine choice. because I wanted to talk to talk to him about a solo album that he made called Breakaway in 1975. Oh, all right. Yeah, that'd get his attention. Now, again, here's where the research helped. If you know that album, there's actually a Simon and Garfunkel song on that album, and there's a really unique story about that. Uh, Paul Simon had written a song called My Little Town. And Simon and Garfunkel had, had you know, kind of split up by 1970-71. They had recorded maybe one song, uh, one or two songs in 72, but they really hadn't been working together on a regular basis. Uh, Art had gone off in, to make movies and do right. other things. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Paul had, you know, they were both starting solo careers. But Simon had written the song. He knew, he thought uh, that Garfunkel could use it on his solo album. So they went into the studio and cut My Little Town and liked it so much. Simon liked the finished song so much that he also wanted to use it on his solo album, Still Crazy After All These Years from 1975, which he was doing at the same time that Garfunkel was doing Breakaway. And so it, it's one of the, I don't know if it's the first time, but it's certainly one of the times where a single was uh, a hit from two separate solo albums by a former duo, if that huh. makes any sense. Uh, it does, um, it does. I get your point. Yeah. What, what happened was, though, that when the public heard it and, and reacted to it, they anticipated that Simon and Garfunkel were actually getting back together. Of course. And, uh, of course, we know that didn't happen. You know, Simon right. went on to Not a very time, successful right. career. Mm-hmm. Not at that time, yeah, right. Yeah. Not until 81, I think, is yeah. when the uh, Central Park concert was. Yeah. Um, but Garfunkel was uh, really willing to talk about his solo work on that, uh, on that album. And, and that was kind of my door into Simon and Garfunkel was my little town because as long as I didn't ask about it, he was more than happy to talk about it. <laughs> and, uh, and at the end of the interview, he said to me, he said, well, you did a really good job avoiding all the Paul Simon questions. 
And I said to him, I said, well, I had done some research and I kind of knew that you didn't really like those kind of questions. Plus, I know the answers to them already because everybody else has. Right, right, right. And so right. he proceeded, which I thought was fabulous. I have this on tape. He proceeded to go ahead and ask the Paul Simon questions to himself and answer them <laughs> while I just sit there and listen. And I thought that was a very, uh, very unique way to uh, wrap up that interview. But I will say this about our Garfunkel. He's a, he's an avid reader. He's a very articulate, intelligent guy. Yeah. And he he challenged me as an interviewer. He challenged me as a reporter to not ask inane questions, to to ask the questions that I wanted the answers to, and not to beat around the bush with it. So I thought it was it was a really interesting give and take between interviewer and interviewee. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and. As such, you know, I, I guess I held my own because it ended up being 35 minutes of a very, very pleasant Art Garfunkel. Wow, that sounds awesome. Well, let's yeah. play a little of My Little Town. really nice and uh, uh, such an interesting story mike you're you're getting just real gold here uh and uh you know because you're you know a journalist and you know have the history behind you when you are talking to these guys you know you know your stuff and uh you know obviously the appreciation is there and you know you hit you hit it out of the park there with uh with art garfunkel so so well, i was very fortunate on that one but thank you and and you know what it's 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 something again that has evolved i've become a better interviewer. And, and what I've learned was if you can just have a conversation with them, not really interview, just have a conversation yeah. with them. Like you're yeah. sitting in the living room having a conversation mm-hmm. and, and you'd be, and, and the other thing is to shut up and listen. Sometimes, you know, do a lot of shutting up and a lot of listening and, right, uh, right. and you'll get those kinds of stories that, uh, that, are, that they're, you're right. They're just the gold. All right, give me one more, because that's about all the time we got. I could do this all day long uh, in stacks of wax. Give me a second one. All right. Well, I mentioned I had cheated a little bit uh, going back to 1969. And the reason I did, uh, I went back to an album called Sands of Time by Jay and the Americans. And Jay and the Americans were very, very big in the in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, but by the 70s, again, they were struggling to remain relevant. But mm-hmm. uh, the story that I was told by uh, Sandy Dean from Jay and the Americans is just fascinating to me. And it shows you. Uh, it's a firsthand account of a very historical, as we all know, on uh, February 9th, 1964, the Beatles appeared on the Uh, Ed Sullivan show. The earthquake, uh, yes. In New York City. Yes. Now, uh, what what I didn't know was that on February 11th, two days later, they were scheduled to do their first U.S. live show at the Washington Washington, Coliseum. Mm -hmm. Now, on February 10th, a huge snowstorm hit the Northeast. And the opening acts for the Beatles on February 11th 
the next day was supposed to be Tommy Rowe, who had a number one hit with Sheila in 1962. Right. And the Chiffons, which was an all-girl group from the yep, Bronx. Yep. Uh, and, well and their song was, he's, he's so fine, and right. will you still love me tomorrow? Mm-hmm. They were supposed to be the openers for the Beatles in D.C. on February 11th. But because of the snow, neither of those groups could get to D.C. The manager for uh, Jay and the Americans called Sandy Dean uh, the morning of the concert uh, on February 11th. And he said, you guys get in the car and get to DC from New York. Uh, you're going to, uh, be opening up with the B, uh, open for the Beatles and you and the righteous brothers are going to uh, fill in for Tommy Rowe and the Chiffons. So Jay and the Americans got, you know, got their stuff together and, uh, they got to DC and they got to the concert venue they had, when they first came in that the Beatles were, were, were already there and they were doing a press conference uh, with all the American press. And uh, Sandy Dean said that we could tell just by listening to the answers that these guys were giving the American media that they were different. They were something special. I mean, that was noticeable in this press conference. Mm-hmm. The dressing rooms at the Washington Coliseum were underneath the venue, the, the, the performing area. The stage area, okay. The stage, yeah, they were underneath. Uh, on a different floor, and uh, the Righteous Brothers went on first. And according to Dean, uh, they were just listening from downstairs, so they didn't have a visual on this. But apparently, the Righteous Brothers could not be heard over the screaming of "We want the Beatles." Essentially, uh, the kids just did not want. They didn't want anything to do with the Righteous Brothers. And essentially, when when uh, when Jane the Americans took the stage, they were getting you know, the same chant, we want the Beatles, we want the Beatles. And apparently Jay Black of Jay of the Americans stepped up to the microphone at one point and said, uh, listen, I'm glad you all came to see us tonight. And apparently that was enough levity for, for the crowd to kind of say, okay, let's give these guys a listen. Uh-huh. And uh, Jay and the Americans got through their set and then went back downstage. And, and this is, again, Sandy Dean talking, and he said, uh, we, we couldn't see what was going on. He said, but we were very aware of when the Beatles actually took the stage, he said the sound in the Washington Coliseum was continuous reverberation like nothing they had ever heard before. And it didn't stop the roar. It didn't stop for the entire performance. And, you know, Sandy Dean said, we had, you know, we had played with Elvis. We had played with Roy Everson. We had played with a lot of people, but we had never heard a sound, a roar like that, like the Beatles got, uh, in the Washington Coliseum that night. Yeah, I've talked to some people that uh, had seen the Beatles on uh, their their various uh, U.S. tours, and, and uh, including that first one. And and basically, you you hear the same sort of thing. the The best description that uh, that I've ever heard was somebody basically saying that the second that they show up. It's like a jet engine goes off. This pitch, yeah. this that just and it does not stop. You know, and and you know, a lot of people know. You know, the Beatles quit touring in '66, and the primary reason that most of them give is they just couldn't hear themselves anymore. Uh, it, yeah. it just became yeah. a chore to try to get anything done on stage, and they were becoming uh, less musicians because of it. And uh, yeah. you know, there there you have it, right there. Well. Geez, I mean, pretty nice to Jane the Americans to uh, to get a chance to open the Beatles there on their their first yeah. show here on U.S. soil. So we got to play this magic moment. This magic moment, yeah.
Oh man, Mike, that that was awesome. Uh, and, and again, like yeah. I said, I could do this all day long with you. So this is fantastic. Yeah. This has been a great a great ride today. But I think our time's up, or you know, I'm going to have to split this into multiple episodes. But I, I have a feeling we're going to have you back here. So I think I'm right in saying that there's a fourth book coming. There is uh, the Vinyl Dialogues Volume Four. We just chosen the title. It's called From Studio to Stylus. You heard it here uh, first, yeah. folks, from studio to yeah. stylist. All right, making some and, news. And uh, I'm actually going to uh, go uh, outside the 70s. People have asked me, uh, most people say to me, why don't you go to the 1980s? And I, I'm honest with people in that I'm really not so good in the 1980s because I had graduated from college and I was, you know, had a real job and was ready to start a family. And and I just, I kind of lost track of the 80s music scene. Mm, but yeah. uh, for volume four, I've gone back into the 1960s. So it'll be a combination of, of both 1960s and 1970s. And that, again, takes me back to when I was a kid listening to my folks' vinyl collection. And, and uh, I've got some great stories from the 60s and the 70s. But uh, uh, I've got the story uh, from uh, Bob Berry Hill of the Safaris on the Wipeout. Oh, oh, that's uh, a good one. That's some good uh, And it is, uh, it is so detailed, and his memory was so great on that. And, you know, I've got uh, a Felix Cavalieri from the uh, Young Rascals uh, Groovin, the Groovin album from oh, again, uh, 67. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love to hear about the uh, Young P- Rascals. Peter Yarrow, uh, Peter Yarrow from Peter, Peter Paul and Barry, right? uh, mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. 1700 album, which has got the uh, Leaving on a Jet playing on it. Uh, <laughs> and just, uh, you know, several. And, and again, I'm uh, still loyal to my 70s music. I've got the stylistics. And uh, the captain and Tennille, I talked to Tony Tennille and uh, Stephen Bishop. Uh, of course, I got another Beach Boys chapter. Uh, this one about Carl and the Passions, uh, two albums, Carl and the Passions, So Tough of Holland uh, from 73 and 74. Uh, and, and, a, and a fascinating interview with Elliot Lurie, the lead singer and the writer uh, for Looking Glass, who wrote the song Brandy. Right. Uh, one hit wonder. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, the, he was so gracious and and, and and such a great storyteller. So every detail about Brandy and, and that album uh, I got. Uh, Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits, who, who of course, talks about the British invasion and being right in the middle of the hall at Beatlemania and trying to compete with them and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of great stuff coming in, in volume four. Well, Mike, we can't wait. So, folks, definitely take the time. Go out and get the vinyl dialogues, dropping the needle and stacks of wax right now. And, you know, we can't wait for volume four from the studio to the stylist. So, Mike, it's our pleasure to have you. I'm going to invite you back right now because I know that's I appreciate that. So this was a lot of fun, and we really appreciate it. There's some great stories. You are doing some real archaeology here, and that's what we love to do. This is this is perfect and it's been fantastic so thank you very much and thank you christian you're doing great work with uh with the archaeology project i really love it great all right we'll talk to you soon all righty bye-bye
fourth book on the way we'll definitely have mike back for more storytelling and record sharing until then we thank mike morsh and all you analog loving vinyl record having diggers next time you decide to drop the needle pick up the vinyl dialogue series it's a great companion read and your favorite bookseller has got it you can keep up with mike and all his rock star adventures at vinyldialogues.com I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Remember, music is better when it's shared. So keep up the rockin' and do it with a friend. Bye for now. Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.